My message this morning is entitled, How to Lead Your Wife. Now, by way of preface to this message, I have three things to say by way of clarification. You don't perhaps need me to say these things, but I need to say them. For my own sake as a preacher, so bear with me for a moment or two. First, I admit that the title of this message sounds like the kind of how-to message you'd get at the broad evangelical megachurch down the street. It makes me nervous to preach a how-to message that sounds like that. It sounds like the infamous book talking about how to have your best life now, or a talk on five tips to being holy, or four personality traits that mean you're a knucklehead. I don't want to preach like that. So uh, I want to admit it sounds like that. I don't think it is, but it sounds like that. Secondly, I want to say, and this is at the root of my discomfort, I'm a strong believer in expository preaching. And I do hope and intend that what I will say to you in this hour will be based straightly on the exposition of the Word of God. But I have to admit that the organizing principle and outline does not arise from a single passage of Scripture. The organizing principle arises from my own spiritual experience and specifically my own struggles to try to be a good husband for the last 48 years. As I've struggled with my own sinful tendencies and the depravity which distorts and twists my responses to things, I have come to embrace a paradigm that really kind of encapsulates the three things I must do if I am going to overcome my sins and be a good husband to my dear, dear wife. I see these principles everywhere in Scripture, but I admit that I don't see them clearly in an order laid out in a single passage of Scripture. And so we'll be looking at a lot of passages. Here's the third thing I want to say uh, by way of preface. I'm a strong believer in Christ-centered preaching. In fact, I've gone back and rewritten some old certain sermons of my own that weren't as Christ-centered as I thought they should be. I could see how someone might wonder if a message entitled, How to Lead Your Wife, could be Christ-centered. In some quarters, for a message to be Christ-centered seems to require that it be explicitly about the priestly office of Christ or the free grace of God that flows from that priestly office. And there's no doubt in my mind that the priestly office of Christ is the most foundational of his offices, the most basic in a certain sense. His priestly office and the free grace which flows from it is certainly presupposed in all that I'm going to say this morning. But I freely admit that you may think of this message on how to lead your wife as having more to do with Christ's kingly and prophetic office than with him as priest. Well, now that I've gotten that off my chest, my outline emphasizes three principles It consists in three imperatives which the husband must obey, and uh, I must obey, and I think, frankly, men, you have to obey too, if you're going to lead your wife correctly. Those three imperatives are in sequence, know, listen, act. Now, before I come to those three imperatives, I need to tell you that I'm assuming several things about this matter of the husband's leadership of his wife. First of all, I am assuming 
The leadership of the husband is clearly taught in Scripture and involves real authority over his wife. The fact that a real authority belongs to the husband is conveyed in many different ways in Scripture. The wife is told to submit to the husband. Paul twice says, we heard it uh, uh, in the text that was read this morning, Paul twice says that the wife is to submit to her husband, Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18. This word literally means that she should put herself under his authority. And the husband is called the head of his wife. 1 Corinthians 11.3 is the classic text. We looked at it yesterday. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And the word head means indispensably and inevitably authority. The husband is described in Scripture by several words ascribing to him lordship. Oh, I know how offensive that sounds in our day and age. But it does. Did you know that one of the words for husband in the Old Testament is Baal? Now you think of Baal as a false god, and that's true, he's used that way. But the word Baal means Lord. It's not only used of false gods in the Old Testament, it's used of husbands. But God came to Abimelech, Genesis 20, verse 3, in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Literally, the Hebrew reads there, She is lorded by a lord. She is bailed by a bail. And the Old Testament also uses the term Adon for a husband. The word sometimes is used in Hebrew constructions for God as lord, Adonai, but it also means Lord to refer to the husband. This is the word used in the famous passage quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 3, 6. Genesis 18, 12 is being quoted. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord, literally my Adon, being old also. Now, we speak of servant leadership in our day. I have to admit, I'm ambivalent about this phrase. I think it is usually well-intentioned, but sometimes I think it sounds like we're talking about a non-leader leader, and I don't know what in the world that could be. Such an idea of leadership is nonsensical and a contradiction in terms. Then I want to say, too, another thing I bring with me to this message before I get to my three imperatives is this. The leadership of the husband is not the result of the fall, but the standing arrangement of the creation order and what is creational is perpetual. Paul grounds the submission of the woman in this created order by saying in 1 Timothy 2.13, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and he grounds it also in that in 1 Corinthians 11.7-10 that we'll look at a little bit later. The significance of this is that the submission of the wife is not the result of the fall, and it is not removed by redemption. Redemption restores and upholds the created order. As the creation order, male headship is the perpetual order of creation. My, how countercultural I'm sounding. And then this, the leadership of the husband is not an arbitrary arrangement but the necessary order for the good of both the man and the woman. The 
the fact that <clears throat> this is the created order directly implies, since everything God created was good, 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 and very good, the man is not the leader just because somebody has to be the boss. It's not an arbitrary arrangement. Rather, it's what is best, though the best good of the woman, that she should be under the protective and providing headship of her husband. She is the delicate and fragile vessel. 1 Peter 3, 7. Thus she needs the protection which God has provided by the created order. And then another thing I'm assuming is this. The leadership of the husband involves the husband's dependence on the wife. Our authority as husbands and the authority of a husband that I'm talking about is not like God's authority. It is not an authority of sovereign independence like that authority which God exercises. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, which say, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man is his birth to the woman, and all things originate from God." It is always necessary for the husband to exercise his headship, remembering that he's not sovereign Lord like God. God's authority is independent of us. God's authority doesn't depend on us. God doesn't need us. But men, we need our wives. We, and this means that there is mutual dependence in this authority relationship. It means that there must be counsel sought in this relationship. It means that there must be communication in this relationship. In all of these ways, we are not like God, and our authority is not sovereignly independent like his. No, the husband must exercise his headship with a clear distinction in his mind between his lordship and God's lordship. That's Paul's point in this passage. God is independent and sovereign lord. Man holds headship over the wife, but he is also very dependent on the wife he leaves. This sense of dependence ought to permeate and qualify his view of his leadership. I'm not saying it, it, under, it overthrows it or it denies it. I'm saying that it permeates and qualifies it. Those are two different things. So with those things in your minds that are in my mind as I come to my three imperatives, here's the first one. The first imperative, you remember, was no. And what I mean is, men, know who you are. I think this is a really big deal. The man must know who he is and embrace in a more than theoretical way his position as head of his home. He must know and believe experientially the authority and leadership which God has given him in the home and over the wife. And I think the scriptures indicate that this is a really big deal. How? By again and again beginning exhortations to husbands by identifying them in precisely that way as husbands. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, that's who you are. You've got to know that. If you're going to listen to me, you're going to do what I'm going to say. You need to know your husbands. 
Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 1 Peter 3.7, you husbands, you get, the importance that it's, you get the impression that it's important for you to know what you are, a husband? Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word husband is simply the word for adult male, which sometimes in some contexts means husbands. But it is the word in Greek, which means an adult male, not a boy, and an adult male, not a woman. Now, by addressing us in this way, the scriptures require us to remember who we are. They are saying to us repeatedly, you are the man, act like it. Now, let me open up the importance of this, of knowing who you are under several questions. What do you need to know? You need to know the position of authority which you occupy. We have seen that already. The wife is commanded to submit to the husband in all things lawful. He is the head or authority of the wife. He is her Baal, Adon, Aner, adult male. Uh, but these words Baal, and this word Baal means lord or owner. This is your house, bud. It's your house. You're responsible for it. Sarah called Abraham her Lord, Adonai. The root is often used to describe God as our Lord. And you need to see yourself this way. That's what the Bible says. I don't care what our culture says. That's what the Bible says. Our culture is nuts. You're going to let it guide you? That's what you need to know. How do you need to know it? You need to know that you occupy this position as appointed by God. Who made you husband? God. You need to know that you occupy this position as appointed by God. You need to believe and know experientially that by the creation ordinance and by the oaths which constituted you married to that woman, you are her head, authority, and Lord. Divine appointment. Divine appointment has made you the head of the wife. And you need to occupy this position, not defensively, uncertainly, or fearfully, but confidently, securely, serenely, and peacefully. You need to feel yourself as responsible to give leadership to your wife, and you shouldn't be questioning that in your mind all the time. You should be neither timid nor defensive about this position, all of this confidence is implied by the knowledge that the divine order has made you the head of the wife. You do not need to be constantly defending or feeling defensive about your authority, but you must be constantly assuming it and acting upon it. And you must know this fact humbly, meekly, and in a godly way. You need to remember your responsibility to Christ to be not only the president or head, 
but the provider and the perfecter of your wife. For Ephesians 5, 23 to 26, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In a lower sense, we are to be our, our homes and our wives' savior, protector, provider. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. God help us to do that. It is clear here that the husband is to be three PRs. I love alliteration. President, provider, and protector. That's easy to remember, right? But is this purpose for the purpose of two other PRs? Um, Pardon me. He is this uh, to be the savior of the body, and he is to be provider, loving our wife and providing for her spiritual and physical well-being. All of this he is to be under the headship of Christ. Christ is the head of every adult male. That's what 1 Corinthians 11.3 says. And you must know this fact lovingly, carefully, and concernedly. Once more, think of the love commanded of you in Ephesians 5.25-29. The orientation of this headship you have is to protect your wife and provide for the wife. Did you hear that? Protect the wife, provide for the wife. Both physically and spiritually, both temporally and eternally, you are to be provider and protector. But why do you need to know this? You need to know it because uncertainty and insecurity in your position will breed all sorts of things, will breed all sorts of things which undermine good leadership. Here's where I need to share with you my own failings and struggles because I'm talking about me. I found myself sometimes as a husband not embracing my authority confidently. Rather, I find myself being passive or fearful of conflict or too lazy to disagree with my wife. Ever feel any of those things? Thus, I give in on matters about things just to get along. We men love just to get along, don't we? And then I realize later that I really, really do not like the consequences of just getting along. I really do not like or agree with the consequences of my leadership failure. And then when I come to the point of having to put up with the consequences of my leadership failure, what happens? You know what happens. I get sinfully angry. I blow up. Or... Just as bad, perhaps, I freeze up and withdraw. Of course, the consequences for my wife, you know she loves this, don't you? Of course, the consequences for my wife are really ugly and sad when that happens. All of this happens because, all of this happens because I've lost my grip on my position and my responsibilities I have to lead. I missed you, Kitty. We may not do this as men. 
Such neglect, passivity, and fear is the utter opposite of leadership we are called on to give our wives. You have no right to get mad at the consequences of your own leadership failures. It's your house, bud. If you don't like what's going on, change it. Sorry, I'm yelling at myself. If you cannot change it with good conscience, if you cannot change it within the realm of the possible, then you have to lead in the midst of the problem. You have to put up with the results of your leadership failure, but you still don't have any grounds to be resentful because it's your own fault. Be mad at yourself, but don't be mad at your wife. All of this condemns, of course, all sorts of vices connected with leadership failure. What are those vices? It condemns defensiveness. You have to own your own decisions and bear the responsibility for them. If they were wrong, don't defend them. Admit it and do what you can to make them right. This condemns overbearingness. We are creatures of overreaction. It's true everywhere and always. Men can overreact and become overbearing and intolerant in their leadership. They forget that they are dependent on the wives they lead when they do this. Our wives do not need us to micromanage their grocery shopping. They need clear direction, but they don't need us hovering over them in the kitchen or in the grocery store. And this condemns timidity. Fearfulness to lead is rebuked by this. Maybe I'm the only one like this, but I doubt it. (laughs) Sometimes I do not lead because I don't want the conflict that I'm going to get exerting myself, and that will result in that. That's not to say anything bad about my wife. It's just that I don't like conflict. I'm really conflict-diverse. Maybe you are too, but that is a leadership failure. And it condemns passivity. Sometimes... It's not timidity, it's it's sheer wicked passivity. Sometimes it's sheer laziness which keeps men from leading. They need to get off their butt and do something. They need to exert the effort to lead. They need to stop watching TV or taking refuge in their garage or in their workshop They need to stop working too many hours. They need to stop being passive and have some of the hard conversations they have been avoiding. This is why the first imperative is know. Know who you are. And all of that brings me to the second of my three watchwords. Listen. Listen. Now, I can imagine some husband, of course, not any of you, but I can imagine it, reacting to what I have just been saying. You're right. I have not exercised my headship. I have to go right out and make some decisions and set some things straight. Wait. Please wait. Before you start doing stuff, (laughs) probably dumb stuff, before you start doing stuff, there's something you have to do first. You have to listen. 
Now, I have two points about this, listening. You must do. First, let's, let's think about why you must listen. Let me offer you three reasons why you must listen. Because, <laughs> as we've said, your position of authority and leadership is not like God's. And it does not mean that you need to act as if you're omniscient and not in need of any counsel or advice. Yes, the Bible teaches that God had no counselor when he formed his eternal decree and plan. God didn't need a counselor. There was no one there to counsel him, but you need a counselor, and there is someone there who can counsel you. The Bible asks, who has been his counselor? That's a great way of glorifying God. <laughs> but it's not a great way of glorifying you as a husband. <clears throat> Someone has to ask that question. Remember that your authority is not like God's. He needs no counselor to give him wisdom about how to exercise his authority. But you do. Remember what we saw in the introduction. It is authority which involves the husband's dependence on the wife, not an authority of sovereign independence like that authority which God exercises. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth to the woman, and all things originate from God. Because of that, you need to listen. You lead as a man, and that means that you need counsel, and that means you have to listen. Leadership does not mean that you get to be a jerk who does not know how to listen. But there is another reason why you have to listen. You must not only listen because you are not omniscient, but you must listen because your leadership is for the purpose of protecting and providing for your wife. This is the purpose of our headship, according to Ephesians 5.25 and following, to protect and provide. That's why we're president. Here is a great truth which many young husbands have to learn. <laughs> they may think they know what their wives need, but actually they don't. They may think they know what their wives want, but they don't. They really didn't want a lawnmower for their birthday present. I hope none of you have done that. <laughs> but more seriously, they also may not understand what their wives are afraid of. And so if they don't understand what their wives want or what their wives are afraid of, how can they find out? Ah, here's a plan. Go talk to them and listen. Now, the Bible also speaks very clearly about this need to listen, and that brings me to 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Literally, you know, Peter says that you must deal with your wife according to knowledge, as with someone weaker. Now, there are at least two things which underscore our need to listen to our wives in this text. 
First, Peter emphasizes the need to live with our wives according to knowledge. Well, how do you get knowledge since you're not omniscient? (laughs) You have to go listen. Are you born with this vast store of innate knowledge so that all you need to do is consult your gizzard to have all the knowledge you need? You know that's not true. You must get this knowledge often and frequently from others, and that means that you must listen. And the second thing that Peter emphasizes that's relevant here is that, um, let me share a great truth with you. Women are different than men. Our society may have forgotten that, but the Bible didn't. Men actually know this. That's why all the sayings come about were men about men not understanding women. But even though they make jokes about it, they don't seem to understand what that means or the practical responsibility it puts on them. Oftentimes men do not see their need to do anything about this lack of understanding. Now Peter emphasizes that women are different than men. He says they are weaker vessels. That sounds offensive, but... There's nothing demeaning of women in that description. Porcelain dishes are weaker than iron skillets, but porcelain is much more valuable and beautiful than an iron skillet. And in fact, just because it's porcelain and more fragile and delicate, it is more valuable and beautiful. But the point is that women are porcelain dishes and not iron skillets. Now, men know how to treat iron skillets because they are iron skillets. But men do not know how to treat porcelain dishes in fine china because they're not fine china or porcelain dishes. So how do they find out how to... About, find out about how to treat the fine china of the weaker vessel and will live with such fine china according to knowledge. Uh, they have to listen. But this brings me to my second point about listening. It has to do with this. To whom must you listen? Now, I suppose you're thinking that I'm going to tell you right off that men must listen to their wives. And, of course, I'm going to say that. But that's not the first thing I'm going to say. I'm going to say, first of all, that you must listen to your God. Here we're back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God made women. You should listen to him. He knows about women infinitely well. Therefore, it follows that first you must listen to God if you would know how to dwell wisely and kindly with your wife. But how must you listen to God and gain the knowledge only he can give? By prayer, by inquiring prayer to him. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And the word translated meditate means to seek or inquire. You need to go to the temple and inquire about your wife. Psalm 55, 17 also emphasizes this kind of prayer, I think. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. Complain here means meditate. 
and murmur speaks of a concerned request. You got to pray. But you also have to study the word of God if you would know the mind of God. Proverbs 2, 4 to 6 says, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But of course, you must listen to your wife. If you're going to responsibly lead a wife in a godly, wise, and good way, You must understand her needs and concerns. That means you must spend a good amount of time listening to her. You must talk to her and listen to her concerns. To this end, you must make time to spend with her and allow her to fill your ears with all her troubles, fears, concerns, wants, and needs. You may feel overwhelmed after that, but that's still what you must do. You must talk to them every day, but you must create special times, date nights maybe, in which you show yourself approachable, and give her a listening ear. Listen to your wife. I especially remember doing this when my wife was a Christian school teacher, and we would be very busy during the week, but Friday afternoon would come, and we'd actually drive to Evansville, 45 minutes away. Not because there weren't places we could go in Owensboro, but because, or partly because, uh, that way she could bend my ear for 45 minutes while I was driving. That was a really good thing for me to do, one of my few successes. (laughs) But we must not only listen to our wives, we must listen to other godly people. Since normally you will know wise and godly older men and women, you may be helped if you can discreetly and without revealing confidences listen to their views of how your wife should be led. And if someone tries to tell you something about what you're doing wrong as a husband, some older godly man or even godly woman, don't be a knucklehead. Listen to them. The Bible urges us to seek counsel, does it not? Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors there is victory. Proverbs 11:14. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 12:15. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Proverbs 13:10. With con- without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 15:22. Are you having trouble with conflict, angry outbursts, disagreements, a withdrawn wife in your marriage? Are you trying to talk to your wife but feeling that you're getting nowhere? Perhaps it's time to go ask somebody about it in a discreet and wise way. Maybe it's time to go talk to your pastor about it. But there's a final and important imperative in my paradigm for how to lead your wife. It is act. Know, listen, and only after you've known and listened, then act. Well, first of all, the necessity of acting. Having done all this, you must act. Knowing who you are and listening to the way, the way that you must, you must come to practical conclusions. That is, you must make decisions and implement them. Leadership may mean deferring some decisions and delaying some decisions. 
but it never means dithering. You must address the fears, concerns, needs, and wants of your wife by making practical decisions and acting on them. That's the necessity of acting, but the requirements of acting. This requires earnest and diligent prayerfulness in your leadership. Earnest and diligent prayerfulness in your leadership. Uh, One thing I owe to my wife is is about a hundred times she's asked me about some decision I'm thinking about, and she's asked me, have you prayed about it? Ooh, maybe I had, but maybe I hadn't, and maybe I need to pray. Yes, I do need to pray. Before you decide, before you act, you pray. But praying is no excuse for being indecisive. Remember that time God told Joshua to get up off of his knees and do something? He was praying. Joshua chapter 5, I think. And here's a strategy which has enabled me to combine prayer with decisiveness. Because, you know, you can pray and pray and pray and pray and never make a decision, and that can't be right either, right? So, sometimes we face situations in which we do not know the direction God would have us take. It's a close call, it's not black or white, it's not right or wrong, it's a matter of wisdom, divine guidance, things like that. Well then, of course, in those situations we must seek God's face and inquire in his holy temple. In such situations, however, there is often in life a deadline by which or before which a decision must be made. Now, God has given me some boldness in such situations to pray this way. Lord, Lord, I need to make a decision by this date. That job offer isn't going to stand out there forever. I have till this date to make a decision about it. Uh, That house that we're thinking about buying is only going to be available for so long. And we need to make a decision. I need to know by that date. Right now I'm inclined to think that I should make this decision and go this direction. If I am wrong, Lord, please show me. (laughs) Please make that clear to me. Uh, You have a mouth. This is one of our great sayings in our home. God has a mouth and he can speak. The idols have mouths and cannot speak, and throats and cannot utter a word. But the living God has a mouth, and he can speak. In his word, first of all, by his spirit and providence. So if I'm wrong, make that clear to me. You have a mouth and you can speak. You can change my mind, and I desperately want you to and need you to if I am thinking foolishly. Otherwise... I'm going to have to go in the direction which I'm inclined to go right now. Please show me if that's wrong. I think that's a wonderful way to pray. I think you should pray that way. Well, and then another requirement is this. This requires a biblical boldness to go forward when you see the right thing to do. (laughs) Um, You know, personal illustrations can can be bad, I suppose, but I think um, God will bless holy boldness to go in directions from an earthly perspective that seem foolish. I went back to school to pursue my PhD with two kids in college. 
what a stupid decision, you might say. I wondered about it myself. But God was there, and he showed me that he, there's a way of providing for my family. And I was convinced that this move was best for my wife and my ministry. And God paved a road for us to move to Kentucky and provided all our needs. Let me give you one illustration of what he did. We tell this story all the time, so I guess I can tell it to you, right? My wife owned and operated to help put our kids in Christian school and through college, an adult foster care home. We had six developmentally uh, challenged ladies and uh, a live-in manager to take care of them, along with my wife. (laughs) Uh, our, Our home in Grand Rapids had eight bedrooms, five baths, and no bowling alleys. And no swimming pools either. Uh, And when I made the decision that we're going to move, I thought to myself, we're never going to sell this place. Who wants a home with eight bedrooms and five bathrooms? Even in Grand Rapids where they have big families. (laughs) And you know what happened? We told the person that was our contracted manager for our house whom we had no idea in the world could ever afford to buy it. And without ever putting our home in the market, they bought it. That was, that was a great blessing. God doesn't always make our path that straight in the direction of our duty, but he did that time. We sold our home to the first person whom we mentioned our move. The first person. And we never did put it up with a real estate agent or on the market. God can bless prayerfully, but boldly made decisions. And then this also requires a holy humility to tweak decisions once you implement them and see that there are things that need to be changed up or done in a slightly different way. (laughs) I don't like to change my mind. I I want to make a decision and go, right? But... Sometimes we can't do that. I've told you the story in Sunday school. Uh, We had this four acres of land given to us. We were going to build on it as a church. And then God led us in a completely different direction. I got whiplash as a pastor. We voted as a church to accept the land and build on it. And then a couple of weeks later, then he shows us the church he wants us to buy. Wow. But the point I'm making here is, You may have made a good plan for what you knew at the time. You may have made a plan that made sense at the time, but things change, and you can't be stubborn, defensive, or whatever else it is, and refuse to change plans when situations change. We have to be flexible, and we can't be proud and stubborn. So, I think God puts us into situations where we must change our minds to remind us that he is God and we are not. Even good decisions may later need to be tweaked. And this requires one more thing. It also requires a proper flexibility so that we may meet new situations, not with a stubborn attachment to our previous decisions and applications, but with a willingness to address new situations with new decisions. 
Yes, new situations require new decisions. They don't require new principles. They don't require new doctrines. But they do require new, situ uh, new situations do, new decisions based on those good old rock-solid biblical principles we have. So, though I like to have a plan and execute it, I really struggle to change my plans. I'll talk to my wife. I've had to learn, and you must learn, dear man, to change good plans for better plans. This is how to lead. Know who you are as God's man. Listen to your God, your wife, and to godly counselors, and act. Don't dither with prayer, boldness, humility, and flexibility. Go forward. May God help you, dear men, for the sake of your wife and family to do so. One more thing. It's another word that some of you need to hear before you can even start what I'm saying to you this morning. And the word is repent. Salvation begins with repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means repenting of godless, worldly, selfish, wicked ways of looking at yourself and taking your place under the authority of Christ and embracing the fact that Christ is the head of every man. And that embrace begins with repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to confess your sins. You need to ask God to forgive you and you need to ask him to do that for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. The entrance of your word gives light and life. Grant that to each one of us. You know how condemned I felt so often in preaching this message. And perhaps these men have felt that kind of condemnation too, failure. But Lord, help them to seek forgiveness from you. you. There is forgiveness with you. That you may be feared. And we ask that this would be the result of this message. Forgiveness and the fear of God. In Jesus' name, amen.